You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And the Orioles have won the game! They did it! They did it! They did it! And they're going crazy! They're jumping on each other! One of the most unbelievable finishes you will ever see. And welcome to it. Thank you so much for being with us on this very special edition of the podcast. Brett Hollander and Jeff Arnold, just a couple of Orioles broadcasters, uh, looking back at some magic moments in Orioles history. And Jeff, we have a great guest today, a guy who won a Cy Young Award, pitched in 18 big league seasons, two with the Baltimore Orioles, but in some ways made one of the more impactful starts in club history. Opening day, 1992, Orioles and Indians, April 6th, and for the first time ever, the ballpark at Camden Yards in an official game, and uh, what a day it was uh, for baseball, for Baltimore, and for the Orioles. And Rick Sutcliffe had a big part to do with that particular day, and there were a couple of backstories. First, about how Sutcliffe ultimately decided that he was going to be part of the Orioles organization after he met with his old friend Johnny Oates then the manager of the team, and how it was Camden Yards that was a big draw for getting Sutcliffe to join the organization. And then the day that he pitched, uh, I'm going to be interested to get the full story from him because he wasn't feeling all that well, but he and Charlie Nagy of the Indians both went the distance in what was a memorable, albeit a quick, first game at Camden Yards. Yeah, just more than two hours to get that one finished. A 2-0 Baltimore win a game that almost every Orioles fan knows backwards and forwards, the final strikeout. I can hear Joe Angel's call in my head uh, to end that game. And you think that game is, is thought about so much in club history. It's such an important game, the presence there. It starts this run of new ballparks across America, not only by look, but by where they're located. Uh, for Baltimoreans, it's such a point of pride. It's such a game-changing moment in, city, in the city's history. And if they lose that game, or if Suck gets knocked out in like the third inning, how much does that change your view of a day like that? So not only does Sutcliffe, who's a big free agent pickup at the time, uh, not only does it does he pitch really well, he's kind of the staff leader, and he's getting the ball on opening day, it's really important they win that game. I mean, they don't go to the playoffs, but they have a really good season, 89 wins, which was a big surprise. Uh, but it, it is important to have that memory that game one, not only was a win, but it was a 2 nothing shutout win. And it was an Orioles pitching staff that even though Sutcliffe was in his mid to late 30s at the time, it was a staff that was very young. I mean, Arthur Rhodes, Ben McDonald, and Mike Mussina were all at the very beginning of their careers. And Sutcliffe, they had him start that first game, even though he didn't necessarily want to start that first game. He tried to say, well, Mike Mussina should be the one that that makes this this start in what was Mussina's first full major league season. And Johnny Oates said, you know, Ben McDonald, he's actually better than you are as well. But I know that we can send you out there and that you're going to be able to compete with all these other staff number ones. And it turned out to be a big boon for not only the Orioles winning that first game, but for Sutcliffe too, because that was the first of what was a fantastic April for him. He had a 2.65 earn run average. He threw two complete game shutouts in the month of April. 
and it got him off to a good start after the previous two years for him where he battled injuries, didn't go all that well, and, and he would prove to be a big part in that team, which was challenging the Blue Jays for a division title. And, of course, as we know, Toronto was in the middle of their dynasty at that time winning the 92 World Series. Yeah, it's not the balance of power we're used to these last few years in the American League and in the American League Eastern Division. At that time, uh, the Yankees were not the Yankees that would come to be a few years later, and the Red Sox weren't there. Uh, there were no Rays or Devil Rays, uh, but uh, it was the Toronto Blue Jays as the American League power, soon to be uh, almost upended in a few years by the Orioles and Indians featured in this game. So a really interesting time for the Orioles, obviously, uh, for city planners and ball across America, the standard was made and set on April 6, 1992. And the other part of it, too, with the, the Orioles ballpark was that they showed Larry Lucchino and some of the Orioles brass a, a different draft before they finally got to Camden Yards and taking all those influences from ballparks past and years past, and they made it uniquely Baltimore. That's what the ballpark was. But the first draft, it, it didn't quite resemble – what Camden Yards would eventually become. And so Larry Lucchino looked at the blueprint for the first one and was like, no, this isn't quite exactly what we're looking for because Camden Yards, and, and I'm coming from Philadelphia. This is where I'm originally from. So we had Veterans Stadium. And I don't know, Brett, if you ever had nice. been to Veterans Stadium, but uh, it was just one of those 60s, 70s kind of ballparks, multi-purpose. Very run-of-the-mill, and I remember when I went to RFK Stadium at the very end of its tenure hosting the Washington Nationals when I was actually in college. I think it was right before I met you when we were both at Dickinson College, and as I was going through the ballpark, and I believe it was Frank Robinson's last game that he ever managed, and I, I immediately walk in there, and this was probably 2005, 2006, and you just got this smell, and you're like, it smells of garbage, cotton candy. You look around, there's not much in the way of amenities. And that reminded me a lot of what Veterans Stadium was because that's the ballpark I grew up with. And I remember the first time I ever went to Camden Yards was probably when I was 12 or 13. And when I walked in there for the first time, it was like, oh, this is what like a real ballpark is like. Because, you know, you just gotten to know, you know, for me, what Veterans Stadium was. And it was like, if you'd been to one, you had been to the likes of, Cincinnati, Three Rivers Stadium, uh, all those just concrete giants that didn't really have much in, in the way of um, un uniqueness to them. They weren't particularly you know, memorable in any ways. But you went to Camden Yards, and it was just like, whoa, this is a real ballpark, and this is unique to this city and is a special place to watch baseball. Yeah, we'll get to Rick Sutcliffe right now. Afterwards, I'll tell you my personal experience with it. But along those same lines, Jeff, it was a life-altering experience about my feelings about baseball and my, and my passion towards Baltimore baseball. It really has never been the same since uh, April of 1992. So we're going to now talk about the opening of this ballpark. Nice 3D imaging right there. <laughs> Former Cy Young Award winner, a guy who pitched in 18 different big league seasons. Former Oriole Rick Sutcliffe joins us right now, who honestly, I believe, had one of the biggest starts in club history if you consider the meaning of April 6, 1992, a 2-0 Baltimore shutout over the Cleveland Indians. And Rick, thank you so much for joining us. We hope you and your family are well uh, during these difficult times. 
We're doing fine. Um, you know, uh, I took off for spring training to be with the Cubs uh, on February the 12th. And then, as all of us know, on March the 13th, everybody got sent home. Uh, I hopped in my rental car. Uh, our daughter, our son-in-law, and two grandkids live in San Diego. My wife was here uh, visiting. So uh, I drove over in the rental car. And like a lot of other people, uh, we're still here. Uh, we're waiting for better news. We're hoping for better days and obviously hoping to uh, get back on the baseball field at some point this year. Well, in the spirit of that, let's reminisce about some good times. And, uh, you know, you at this point in your career, you're obviously in the back end of it. You had pitched in a lot of big games. You've had some dominant seasons. But here's a game where it's not just an opening of a new ballpark. It's a ballpark that kind of changed the outlook of baseball in some ways and what was to follow in the American city. Uh, the president of the United States is there. Uh, there's, you know, 45, 46,000 people there. What were the nerves of Rick Sutcliffe on opening day, 1992? I, I think really, I, I got to go back a little bit and, and talk about how it all came about. Um, I, I had pitched in a lot of opening days. I had, I had pitched in the playoffs. I had pitched in the all-star game. So the pressure of all of that, I was, I was kind of used to. Uh, but how it all came about was in 1979, when I was fortunate to be the rookie of the year, a big part of that was my catcher, for the most part, was a guy named Johnny Oates. When I got traded to the Chicago Cubs in 84, um, the bullpen catcher for the Chicago Cubs was, again, Johnny Oates. Uh, I didn't go on a scouting report in 84 that the Cubs had. I went on what Johnny told me. And as a lot of people know, I, I went on to, to win the Cy Young Award. Um, and all of a sudden, in 1992, the Cubs didn't want me. I'd come off of shoulder surgery. I get a call from none other than Johnny Oates. He's the manager of the Baltimore Orioles. He said, I need you to come to Baltimore. I want to meet with you. Well, I was happy to go there. I flew in with my agent. I knew what he was going to talk about. But as you said, I was at the end of my career. I, I really didn't need to be going to the American League East where the designated hitter was there. Um, I was older. It just didn't seem like the right fit. But as we get to the ballpark, Johnny leaves Larry Lucchino and everybody else, my agent back, and he walks me out to the mound at Camden Yard. And he said, I want you to look around. And I'm looking around, and I'm seeing how beautiful it is. I'm seeing a lot of things that remind you of, of Fenway and, and Wrigley and, and a lot of the great stadiums of, of baseball history. And Johnny goes, you're going to throw the first pitch ever in this ballpark. And as I talk with you guys right now, I mean, I'm getting the hair standing up on my arms. Um, the goosebumps that I got, like, determined to me that I, I knew what I was going to do. I didn't know what kind of a year I was going to have, but I knew in 1992 I, I was going to be a Baltimore Oriole. I went to my agent. I told him get the deal done. And it was all set that I was going to pitch opening day at Camden Yards. You pitched opening day at Camden Yards, but – you actually were, were telling Johnny Oates, you know, I think Mike Mussina should pitch opening day. And then Ben McDonald was also somebody that could have pitched opening day. Why did you maybe resist it when you were at the mound and Johnny was telling you, you're going to throw the first pitcher? Well, that's a great question. And it's a totally true story. And that with about a week to go in spring training, I had seen what Ben McDonald and Mike Mussina could do. And I went into my good friend, Johnny Oates, and I said, Johnny, you're, you're making a mistake here. He goes, what are you talking about? And I go, I shouldn't pitch opening day. I go, Mike Mucina is better than me. And he goes, I know that. And he goes, Ben McDonald's better than you. And we both started laughing. Like, I, I, you know, I mean, 
you know, I, I, I feel bad enough saying that about somebody, but what are you talking about? And he goes, here's the deal. Last we finished in last place. For us to get back into the playoffs this year, we need Musina and Ben McDonald to dominate. And the easiest way for them to dominate is for me to keep them away from everybody else's number one pitcher. So by you pitching on opening day, I'm going to line you up with everybody else's ace because I know if you're healthy, you can hold your own. And how we're going to get ahead and how we're going to be well above 500 as a team is going to be on the right arms of Mike Mussina and Ben McDonald. And once again, Johnny Oates was correct. I do want to get back in a moment to Moose and Big Ben because, you know, especially with Mike, who ends up going to the Hall of Fame, he's so dominant that year. But but specifically that game, both you and Nagy go the distance. It's a two-hour and two-minute baseball game. It's a two-nothing game. The Orioles score on a sacrifice bunt. Uh, there are no home runs in the ball game. It, it's a nail-biter. But I often think about this in, in Orioles history. It's a game that's replayed and talked about so often. And obviously a pivotal moment for Baltimore in the franchise. But if you lose that game, if it's not a Rick Sutcliffe dominant <laughs> performance, it almost changes history how we look at that game. Well, the one thing that, that I saw in spring training was we might not have been the best offensive team in the game, but that team played outstanding defense. Uh, when you got Billy and Cal up the middle, uh, you're going to turn the double play when you get that ground ball. But I was a fly ball pitcher, and I gave up in spring training what I thought were going to be a lot of doubles and possibly triples that were run down in the gaps by three guys named Mike Devereaux, Brady Anderson, and Joe Orsolak. Our outfield defense was outstanding. And the one thing I learned as a kid coming up in the Dodger organization uh, from a guy named Don Drysdale was he goes solo home runs most of the time won't beat you. So that was kind of my attitude. And, and, and really, it, it came to fruition on opening day. I was just going to fill the strike zone up with whatever I had that I could throw over at that certain time and just hope that our defense would come through uh, with the plays that we needed. Yeah, Billy Ripken with the, the sacrifice bunt. We picked up another run later on. Um, I knew when, when I went out there for the ninth inning, I, I knew what was going on. I knew we had an outstanding closer, maybe the strength of our team, and a guy named Greg Olson. I knew if anybody got on base that that was going to be it. Uh, my goal was to keep that from happening. The game went a little bit over two hours, and it was probably best for you because it sounded like a couple days before um, some guys had gotten food poisoning, and you were known for your toughness in your career. Um, but how challenging was it to try and get through that entire ball game, knowing that yeah. you, you probably weren't feeling the best? That's probably something that a lot of people don't know. It really wasn't talked about a whole lot because it just there was no reason for it. But yeah, we played an exhibition game two days before opening day down in D.C. at RFK. They had like these sub sandwiches in there pregame. Um, a lot of us, including Cal Ripken Sr., it was questionable whether he was going to be able to coach third base. I saw him as I was getting heat put on my arm to go warm up. I saw him throwing up in the trainer's room. Um, the night before, um, I had lived in a house uh, that I rented from Mike Vilecki. Mike, I played with with the Cubs. Um, he's a Baltimore guy. Uh, we were in his house. My agent and his wife were there. Um, I had it coming out both in. I, I mean, I was as sick as you could get at about midnight that night. My wife came in and she told my agent, "You got to go. You got to go get some medicine somewhere. You got to go to a pharmacy and bring something back." 
my agent said, well, don't you think you should call the manager and tell him that, that he's not going to pitch? And my wife looked at him and she goes, hey, come on. You, you know he's going to pitch no matter what happens. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's going he's gonna to take his turn. That was something that back in that day we all took a lot of pride in. Um, you know, the fact that it was kind of overcast that day honestly gave me an opportunity to go nine innings. And if you go back and look at it, I, I mean, I wasn't known for being a quick worker. But I did not want to be on that mound any longer than I had to be because I honestly didn't know what was going to happen. Nobody was happier to see that game over with than I was that day. Hmm. And uh, when you look at uh, the young pitchers we were talking about before, because the Orioles won 89 games that year. People forget. I mean, that started a, a real run of winning uh, in the first part of Camden Yards history. But 1990, 1991, before you were there, Rick, were terrible. Uh, as far as wins and losses are concerned. But the Orioles, in three consecutive drafts, and you, you were a first-round pick, too, they go Olsen, Ben McDonald, and Mike Mussina in three consecutive first rounds. And you look at other parts of that, that pitching staff, guys like Jose Mesa and Arthur Rhodes, who are very young, they go on to have, you know, long, if not brilliant at time, careers. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, and being honest with you, I didn't know that about Ben and Moose and, and, and uh, Greg Olson. Uh, obviously, that's a terrific job. I remember Roland Heeman uh, was a big, big part of what went on with the front office back then. Roland, just a, a great human being. Um, you know, I think one of the things that kind of changed in spring training, um, probably one of the top five compliments I ever received in my life was, at the end of spring training in 92, Cal Ripken Sr. came up to me and he said, I like the way you go about your business. And he didn't say another word, but I knew, you know, he, he, he wasn't a man of a lot of words. And I knew that meant a lot. But I, I think if there was anything in spring training that I might have said or done, we all know how big and strong Cal Ripken is. Cal Ripken literally pregame would beat somebody up every, every day. I mean, he loved to wrestle. You know, he, he got tired of wrestling with his younger brother, Billy. So he started throwing everybody around. He'd throw our clubhouse kids around, all in fun. But he was doing it with Ben McDonald and Mike Mussina. And I said, Cal, I said, I need a favor. I need <laughs> you to leave those two guys alone. I said, you're treating them and everybody else like clubhouse kids. I go, for us to be good, we need these two to take bigger steps than maybe anybody has ever done. And Cal says, you got it. I'll leave him alone, whatever you think. Well, not only was he willing to do that and letting them uh, go from being suspects to prospects to obviously all-stars, but another thing a lot of people don't realize, early in the year, um, I was helping Chris Hoyles call pitches for Ben McDonald and Mike Mussina. After about three starts, we, we knew with Mike Mussina, I didn't need to do it anymore. And I told him and Ben, I'll quit doing it if you guys want. Ben said, no, man, go ahead, keep going. Well, after about five starts for Ben, it seemed like the opposing team started locking in on me in the dugout, calling pitches uh, to Chris Hoyles for Ben. So I go to Cal Ripken and I said, hey, um, I need your help. What do you need now? He said, I go, I need you to call pitches for Ben McDonald. He goes, I'm not going to do that. He goes, I don't do that. I, don't, I, don't, I go, Cal, you, you got to understand, I'm not asking you. I'm telling you. <laughs> <laughs> because they're locked in on me, and this thing has worked out really well. And I know for a fact that you know more about the opposing teams than I do, because I haven't been in the American League for eight or nine years. He, Cal Ripken took over what Ben McDonald threw for the most part that whole year. And just go back and look, it was probably the best year of Ben McDonald's career. 
Hmm. What do you remember about Musina that made him so good right away to you? And, and how did he kind of go about taking that and putting together that, that 92 season that he did? Um, I, I think that's a, that's a great question. And I, I, I got to start it with, um, you know, Ben McDonald and I to this day are as close as we can be. We have so many things in common. We, we've got country music. We love to hunt. We love to fish. We had so many things that we could have a conversation about. When it came to Mike Mussina, with his Stanford degree and, you know, that Greg Maddox type of professor thing, you know, Mike Mussina was always going to be the smartest guy in the room, but he never made anybody feel stupid. Um, he, he, he deserves so much credit for that and his personality. But I'll be honest with you, if Mike Mussina and I weren't talking about baseball, we had absolutely nothing in common. I mean, his, his IQ is here. I mean, you know, my, my partner on ESPN, Book Shambi, once compared my IQ to his as that of an elephant and an ant. It, it, it was even more drastic when you think about Mike Mussina compared to me. Uh, I love him. We, we could not have been better friends. Um, we, we, we did a lot of things together as far as dinners, but there really weren't a whole lot of long conversations between Mike Mussina and myself. I had a lot of things in common with Ben McDonald as far as country music and hunting and fishing and all. And with Mike, I mean, you would compare his IQ to mine as that of an elephant and an ant. Um, we, if we weren't talking about baseball, we didn't have anything at all in common. But obviously, we had six months of baseball where uh, we spent a lot of time together. And Rick, uh, as far as the crowds that would show, and, and you were there also in 93 for, you know, however long it was, seven years or so of a sellout every night. Uh, was anyone anticipating that in the chatter about the ballpark that they, this light switch of sorts would go on and, and just every night you could expect to see every seat with someone in it? Yeah. Yeah, that was that was a great thing. I mean, for the two years that I was there, 92 and 93, uh, we never played in front of even one empty seat. And, and I'll be honest with you, that was part of the conversation uh, that Johnny Oates had with me when he walked me to the mound uh, in December of 1991, when he convinced me uh, that I should come to Baltimore, that I was going to get the opportunity uh, to throw the first pitch ever in that stadium. That was another thing that he talked about, and, and he knew that I would remember from – 1982, 83, and half of 84, um, if you go back in my career, I played for the Cleveland Indians. Uh, a lot of times um, in Cleveland, we'd be playing in front of four or 5,000. The next thing you know, we'd go to Baltimore. And, you know, whether they were any good or not, there were always, you know, at least twenty to 30,000 people there. Those, those fans loved baseball. They knew the game of baseball. And um, I think that I had a lot of success against Baltimore back in those days, and I just remember the crowd appreciating whether it was an Oriole or whether it was an opposing player doing something uh, that was incredible during the game, uh, they let you know about it. And that was one thing Johnny passed on to me was he goes, you know this place is going to be packed, and you know the people in the seats here know the game of baseball. You're going to love it. And that was kind of the deciding factor to become a Baltimore Oriole. You had those great crowds that were coming out, and you had the pitching, the young pitching, yourself, and the great defense. But did you guys think that you were going to be able to compete with Toronto the way that you did? Because they were in the middle of a, a great section of their team's history, 
And you guys stayed with him for a good chunk of that season. Yeah, you're exactly right. I, I can remember years later after that, um, I got to know Larry Lucchino well. Larry Lucchino's the one that got me into broadcasting um, in 1996 and seven. Uh, he was the president of the San Diego Padres. Uh, he wanted me to be the big league pitching coach. I didn't want to do that, um, but he eventually got me into TV. Um, I wanted to give something back to the game of baseball, so I became the rookie league pitching coach for the Padres. Uh, loaded my wife and daughter and our horses and dog. We drove up to Idaho Falls, Idaho. I had an opportunity to give something back at that time. And I, I mean, it was really, um, you know, Larry Lucchino was such a big part of, of, of building that stadium and creating the energy. Um, it was in the perfect location. Uh, you, you think about the old ballpark. And I mean, I, I can just think about what it was like for, Cal Ripken and those guys to go from the old stadium that they played at, where there's a lot of history and a lot of great crowds and a lot of great games. But to go from that facility to Camden Yard, I mean, it had to be like going from rookie ball once again to the big leagues. Hmm. And then the team as a whole, we were talking about the pitching, but uh, you mentioned, you know, Brady Anderson steals 50 bags that year. Mike Devereaux wins most valuable Oriole, made some huge plays in center field, hit a couple. I mean, I think he had over hundred RBIs, uh, it, and Orsalak and, and his type of play in right field. Uh, it was a pretty good team outside uh, of the pitching and obviously having Ripken. Uh, Hoyles had a big year getting that opportunity. It was a pretty good team that won 89 games. Uh, it really was. And, and you know, a, a lot of contributions from different guys. And I give a lot of credit again to Johnny Oates for that, whether he played Randy Milligan at first or whether it was Sam Horn. Um, he put people – in a situation to where if they were going to succeed, this was the opportunity for them. And a lot of times, as you know, um, as you said, right up until the 1st of September, um, we were we were toe-to-toe with the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, going back to Lucchino, he always talked about if we're in contention on September the 1st, which was his birthday, he goes, I consider that a good year. And I think everybody in Baltimore at that point did. I can't remember exactly how. You guys can look this up for me. But I know that either in 92 or 93, towards the end of the year at the deadline, Toronto went out and added David Cohn. They went out and added Ricky Henderson. Uh, They went out, you know, after the 92 season, and I think in 93 or maybe it was 92, they added Jack Morse. Um, Baltimore Orioles went from last place and added me, a guy that basically (laughs) hadn't pitched in a year and a half. I had shoulder surgery. There was no way you would think for us to contend. Obviously, Johnny Oates knew about Eusene and McDonald. But the crushing thing for me in 92, and then again in 93, was at the end of the year, we're right there with Toronto. They go out and add basically a Hall of Famer. And for whatever reason was, we weren't able to add. You can go back, and I'm not going to mention their name, but we added some pieces that really didn't work out for us the last month of that season. But still overall, when you look at it and you think about we're the team was at the end of 1991. Uh, it had to be considered a, a lot of fun and, and a success. For you personally, um, your expectations, you know, what were they going into that season? Because coming off those two years where you, you battled injuries, I mean, you had an incredible April. You had a couple of complete game shutouts in there. And then that carried through where you were giving the Orioles consistent length and, and quality. Um, what did that 92 <laughs> season sort of show you about yourself at that point in your career? You know, that, that, that's a, a funny story. I remember after a game, it was the middle of May, I pitched a complete game, and 
was, as you said, off to that great start. And I remember being in the trainer's room after the game and Brady Anderson looked at me and he goes, are you for real? <laughs> like, like, you know, <laughs> he said, you know, the last couple of years, I mean, you know, you were horrible. What, what's what I said, Brady, I said, I'll be honest with you. I said, I'm healthy. Um, I feel good. I mean, I'm back to where I was. I had time for my shoulder to completely recover. Um, a lot of people don't know that I, I, I hurt my knee right at the end of August. And I ex actually had to have, uh, you know, the meniscus in my left knee scope. Uh, my numbers in September worked great. But regardless of, of whether I, I was healthy or not, um, the one thing I knew and that Johnny Oates knew when, when he decided that I was what he wanted um, as far as a free agent was concerned, he knew I was going to take my turn. Uh, you, you take a lot of pride in, in a manager knowing that every fifth day you're going to be out there. And I, I'll be real honest. I mean, as, as, I, as I look back on it, I, if there's one thing about my career that I, I could have changed, I, I wish I could have been more honest. I wish I could have told Johnny Oates that, Johnny, hey, man, I got a problem with my knee. I need to go get this taken care of. Um, I wasn't able to do that. Um, there was never a time when a manager would come to the mound and ask me if I'd had enough that I would tell him, yeah, I'm done. You got to get me out of here. Never. I mean, there were times where I remember Don Zimmer came to the mound like in the eighth inning one time, and I was struggling, but we were still winning. And he goes, I'm going to have to make a move. I, I got to go down and I got to go to the bullpen now. And we both looked down there. I go, who are you going to bring in? And we both looked down there. And I can't remember. I wouldn't tell you your names if, if I knew. We both looked down there. And he looked at me and Zim goes, never mind. You know, never mind. Whatever. <laughs> so, you know, baseball back then wasn't like it is today, where you've got a lockdown guy for the seventh, another guy for the eighth and the ninth. You know, back then, if you weren't the closer, if you were in the bullpen, it was just because simply you weren't good enough to be a starter. Yeah, you, you, you had, uh, I think, 31 decisions in 1992. You would never see that now. 31 decisions. I think 38 <laughs> starts, which is a big number. Uh, even then, it was a big number. Uh, I want to ask you about Johnny Oates, who, you know, I didn't know him personally, uh, but had a reputation of just being a really fine person, a gentleman in every sense of the word, almost to the point where you feel his baseball intellect gets kind of lost because he really was a very successful manager. Uh, I know he meant a lot to you personally. You've touched on it a lot. But what kind of person uh, was Johnny Oates? I think Johnny was one of those guys that maybe in his own way uh, might have changed the game. Um, a lot like Mike Mussina, where his baseball IQ was higher than most. But you stop and think about when Johnny was in Baltimore and the success and how quick that turned around in 92. A lot of teams uh, to this day, have gone to hiring a manager that was a former catcher. And I asked Johnny Oates one time, I said, Johnny, you know, we really don't have a lot of big names down there in the bullpen. How are you able to always put the right guy in at the right time? How are you not normally a step behind another manager when it comes to late in the ball game? And he goes, he goes, Rick, where, where did, what did I do in my career? I go, you were a catcher. But he goes, what kind of a catcher was I? I go, I don't know. What do you mean? He goes, I was a backup catcher. I spent a lot of my career in the bullpen. And down there in the bullpen, we would talk about what was going on in the game. And in the eighth inning, if the manager didn't call down, or if he did call down and he got the wrong guy up, we would all talk about it. He goes, I spent 14, 15 years of my career in the bullpen learning how to manage a bullpen or maybe how not to manage a bullpen. So when you think about 
you know, the, the managers in baseball, the Bruce Bochies, the Joe Girardis, the Joe Men. When you think about Mike Socia, I could go on and on. Joe Torrey, a lot of the great managers in our game today and since Johnny Oates in 1992, a lot of those guys are not only former catchers, but they're former backup catchers. You mentioned Greg Olson earlier, and he was a critical part to, to that team because whenever he would come in for you, you, you pretty much knew he was he was going to get it done. Do you, do you kind of feel like he gets lost in the shuffle just because of Yusina, yourself, and, and Big Ben all had such great years? I feel like Greg Olson would be in Cooperstown right now as a Hall of Famer. Um, and I don't know the whole details, but I know enough that he went on a trip with the All-Star team to Japan. And he was never the same after that. Had he not got hurt, you're exactly right. At that time, uh, he was good of, of a closer as there was in baseball. Uh, one of the best curveballs in baseball. I can't say anybody's curveball was better than Burt Blylev and a guy that I played with for a couple of years in Cleveland. But Greg Olson's curveball was right there along with, you know, a fastball in the mid-90s. He was durable. He, he was that kind of guy. And, you know, when you think about um, you think about great teams. You, you, you think about the Yankees and their success, and a lot of it had to do with Mariano Rivera. A closer is, is, is kind of like that safety net. We all, as a starting pitcher, as a setup guy, you've, you've all got that net to fall into if you need help. Um, it's kind of like having, uh, you know, you're a freshman and you go to high school and you're worried about all the kids and everybody intimidating you, and then you realize, your older brother is a middle linebacker on the football team. Um, you're going to be okay. Um, with a guy like Greg Olson as your closer, you're, you're going to be okay. And, Rick, I do want to ask you about Cal Ripken Jr. You, you, uh, I love the uh, story you once told in the ESPN Sports Century about Cal and, and the streak. And uh, you have uh, Ripken, I think you were telling the story, had an offer, maybe made an error or two. And then long after the game was over, he's on a treadmill uh, going, you know, past midnight. Uh, was that a normal thing for Cal? No, it, it wasn't because he normally didn't go for with maybe an error or two like he had in that game. Um, it, it's terrific that you you take me back to, to that night because I remember I pitched that night and we won, uh, but Cal didn't particularly have a great day. Um, we probably would have won like eight to one. But because of the error and him not getting a couple of clutch hits, I think it was like eight to four or whatever it was, six to four. Anyway, like you said, uh, I go in the trainer's room, I get my treatment. Um, we have a couple of beers. Uh, I've got my wife waiting on me to drive home at the end of it. Uh, as I get done doing all of the interviews and what literally might have been a couple of hours, as I went ready, got ready to walk out, as I walked into the trainer's room, Cal was on the treadmill. And as I came back out to leave the clubhouse two hours later, or hour and a half later, he's still on that treadmill. And I went over to him. I go, what? And I mean, he, he's going. It's not jogging. It's not trying to go for length. I mean, he's getting after it. I go, what are you doing? And he goes, the way I played tonight is unacceptable. And if I'm going to play like that again tomorrow, I'm going to do the exact same thing. I'm going to punish my body and everything about me to make sure that what happened tonight never happens again. That's how much pride that man had in the game of baseball. It wasn't about him being able to go out there and play tomorrow because, hey, running on a treadmill for an hour and a half is not going to help anybody come back the next day. But it helped Cal from the neck up to know that he wasn't going to accept uh, a baseball game like he had had that night. And obviously, very, very rarely in his career did he ever have another one. Mm. Do, do you think some examples like that of 
him doing something along those lines and then yourself just kind of what your history was. Do you think you two made those 92, 93 teams tougher than, than probably what they would have been considering you had a lot of young guys who were trying to get used to the big leagues? I, I think a lot of those, those young guys looked at both of us on, on how we prepared. Um, whether we had success or not out on the field, um, I, I don't think they looked at that as anything that they were going to try to do. Um, both Ben McDonald and, and, and Mike Mussina threw harder than me. They didn't need to watch the way I got people out because that, at, at that point in my career, I had to look for a hitter's weakness. These guys didn't have to look for that as much as they just simply would go with their strengths. And, and when you think about Cal, the, the one thing I think about, uh, you know, I played for the Cubs for eight and a half years. I played with some great players, uh, Andre Dawson, Ryan Sandberg, Mark Grace. Uh, I could go on and on. You know, most of the time with those teams, we didn't take infield. I mean, I'd say half the time we took batting practice. The rest of the time we would just go out there and, and play the game. One thing that, that, you know, we always talk about the Oriole way when you talk about Baltimore and a lot of that came from Earl Weaver, and it came from Cal Ripken Sr. But one thing I remembered about Baltimore that was different, we took infield every single night. And I asked Johnny Oates one time, I go, why are we doing this? He goes, because Cal insists on it. And as I thought about it, what I don't know why in this day and age people don't take infield. You guys stop and think about it. You're at the ballpark as much as I am. You know, everybody takes batting practice, and there's like an hour and a half where nothing goes on. There's nothing going on. What 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 is batting practice at 5:30 have to do with you playing the game at seven? Cal always felt like you had to stay in the flow. You had to build everything up towards being the best you could be at the time the game started. And I think that's something baseball needs to go back to. I think the fans need something to see for that hour and a half that they're piling into the ballpark. And I just think it's important as far as the team being together and get something out of that time. Rick, we'll end on this. Do you remember the final pitch on April 6, 1992 to Paul Sorrento to seal that one? Yeah, I do. Yeah, and, and it's funny because on the 20th anniversary, they brought me back to throw out the first pitch, and I go into Buck Showalter's office. And Buck Showalter goes, well, no wonder you threw a shutout that day. Look at that strike zone. I go, Buck, <laughs> I go, Buck let me tell you a story. And this is true, guys. I'm telling you the truth on this. I – I threw the clincher when the Cubs, they hadn't been to playoffs in 40 years. And as I took the mound for the ninth inning that day uh, in 1984, Jody Davis told me, he said, hey, that last out, the third out in the ninth inning, I want that ball on my glove. Well, I knew what he meant. I knew he wanted me to strike the last guy out. Well, <laughs> I, I had an 0-2 count that day on, believe it or not, Joe Ursula. He was with Pittsburgh then, 1984. I, I knew the umpire and I knew the crowd was into it. Jody Davis, my catcher, set up about that far outside. I hit his glove, and before the ball hit the glove, the home plate umpire had his right arm in the air. Yeah, you know, he knew what the crowd wanted. He knew the importance of that game. Well, I flash back to what happened in 84 for that last pitch in 1992. I got Sorrento up there. He's got power. If anybody gets on, I'm out of the game. Greg Olson's in. I go, oh. Let's see if I can go that far outside of home plate again and get this thing over with. I don't remember the home plate umpire, but he went, yeah, and we all went home happy. Larry Barnett was behind home plate that day at Camden oh, Yards. Larry one of Barnett. my favorite umpires. <laughs> Rick, how far outside do you think that one was? 
It wasn't as far as the one in 84. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Rick, that was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for doing this. That was great. Let's do it again sometime soon, guys. Thank you. You guys are terrific. All right, stay healthy and well and best to your family. Rick Sutcliffe, the former Oriole who won opening day, uh, the opening game of record at Oriole Park at Camden Yards, April 6, 1992. Jeff, that was so much fun talking to Rick Sutcliffe, just a character in baseball. He's a great broadcaster. He obviously had a great career, and he pitched a, a really important game opening day, 1992. But, man, that was fun to listen to him. I loved the stories from Rick Sutcliffe and especially about that last one. When you talked about the, the last pitch he threw that was just a little bit off the outside corner, you know, maybe not quite as far as, as the one that he got that final strike out on in 1984. But uh, yeah, that's what makes him to me one of the game's elite broadcasters is that he not only can break down the game really well, but he can take you back to a different time when he played and some of the different people that he's come across because he spent 18 years in the major leagues. And since as a broadcaster, he's been around so many of these people on a different level as well. And that to me is what makes his broadcast stand out is you feel like you learn something that you come away a little bit smarter, that you have a story that maybe you can tell your friends the next day that, that might've made you laugh. And he did that for a large part of that interview. And that was, that was one of my favorites. Sorrento, who he punches out to end the game on April 6th, opening day, 1992, actually had a couple of hits off Sutcliffe that day. He didn't allow many. Sutcliffe goes nine innings, zero runs, six Ks, one walk, 110 pitches. He was under the weather, uh, but that game will live forever in Baltimore baseball history. And he knew if Sorrento gets on, they're probably going to Olsen, who's going to try and lock it down. But I have the picture in my mind of Sutcliffe shaking hands with Chris Hoyles. And we should have asked about the baseball, Jeff. That's your question. You're, you're always asking about what that baseball is. Someone tells me the Orioles grabbed that one. Yeah, they probably did. I, I think, you know, first win at a brand new ballpark, which, as we all know, the ballpark that changed baseball, that, that one has to be at, at the warehouse someplace. Yeah, and again, I hear – Joe Angel in my head. Uh, Sorrento takes a called strike three, and I'm not going to mimic Joe because there's only one Joe, but, uh, <laughs> and, and the Orioles are in the wind column on opening day. And uh, it was quite a day. So my personal story, I did not go on April 6, 1992. I'm eight years old. I'm in first grade. Uh, Mrs. McDonald's my first grade teacher. I did go with my family to the first exhibition game at Oriole Park at Camden Yards, which was a few days earlier against the Mets. And what was peculiar about that game is Eddie Murray uh, was a Mets player at the time. And, you know, even though I, I was an Orioles fan, there's, you know, a, a generation, not a generation, but there's years apart from, from my understanding of what Eddie meant to Baltimore and the Orioles and the crowd was, you know, erupting Eddie, Eddie chance in 1992. But uh, I will tell you, in that moment, entering that ballpark, I was fortunate enough to go to Memorial Stadium uh, growing up, and I love the Orioles, and there are many pictures of me, you know, wearing orange on 33rd Street, but a light bulb went on in my head. Everything my dad had talked to me about, about baseball and its importance and, and what it means and how great the game is, it all came together with the opening of that ballpark. And at eight years old, and, and what it meant as a Baltimorean, someone having a lot of uh, local and civic pride, what it meant for the state of Maryland, 
And, and since then, uh, talking to all the key players and participants from Herb Belgrad around the Stadium Authority to Larry Lucchino, of course, the president, uh, and, and uh, Janet Marie Smith, and all these people who had so much to do uh, with the building of the ballpark and how it came together, uh, not only impactful for Baltimore and for the Orioles, but baseball. I mean, we knew what, what came after that, and there was a lot of similar ballparks uh, trying to kind of uh, capture the same charm, uh, to the same play on the past in Americana as Camden Yards did, bringing these ballparks, for the most part, not totally, back to downtown areas. Uh, it was something. But, you know, I know I'm, I'm biased, but few have, few have been able to, re- to capture exactly what we have here in Baltimore. Uh, you know, a lot of have gotten really close uh, in Cleveland and Denver, uh, all over. But uh, it just all came together uh, for this ballpark, which is still a crown jewel. And it's, in my mind, as beautiful as ever. And I've been to a lot of other ballparks around Major League Baseball. I mean, Philadelphia's got a great ballpark at Citizens Bank Park. Obviously, in Pittsburgh, what they have at PNC, San Francisco. But if you take all those different ballparks, and when they're thinking about, like, their designs, like, what's the first thing that's, like, coming to mind that's a, a ballpark that was around before any of those other things were? That's Camden Yards. I mean, Camden Yards set the standard for this is what you can do to make your ballpark stand out. This is what you can do that can make it feel like it vibes with your your city and the culture and all those different other elements of where you are. And it all started with Camden Yards. They took things also from some of those other great ballparks that allowed it to, to get the feel. And, and you still have, in, in a way, you know, maybe some some different pieces of of, you know, Memorial Stadium. Don't forget, you got the left field pole and the right field foul pole. They came from Memorial Stadium. So, you know, even finding, you know, little ways to kind of go back to the, the park that preceded it, um, it is what, to me, makes Camden Yards one of baseball's crown jewels. And that's saying something because as you get to this point where, you know, more teams are getting new parks, Atlanta just got its new park, Texas is opening up its new ballpark, um, you know, this year, if, if we ever were able to, to play in home cities, um, Cam Yards is becoming one of the maybe the older ballparks around in Major League Baseball, but it still remains a favorite for most baseball fans when they come there because there's something that remains really special about it, and I don't think that's ever going to change. Yeah, it's hard to kind of put a, a perfect economic picture to what it meant to Baltimore, to Maryland tourism to baseball, uh, but we know a lot of teams, a lot of cities tried to replicate it in every way, but you, you just can't recreate things like what was already there, like the B&O warehouse you can, and, and the way it's used for offices and everything else. And then to know that in center field was where uh, Babe Ruth's uh, father had his old saloon uh, just feet away from where the most famous Baltimorean and one of the most famous, uh, one of the most famous Americans ever uh, grew up. Uh, it, it, there's things there that you cannot, recreate in any sort of fake way i mean this is this is what it was and where it was to know that a football stadium uh came in next door just a few years later is kind of all part of it as well so a big source of pride but uh still as you can tell a beauty in every way but uh what a great conversation uh with rick suckliffe just to to go back through orioles history that day specifically against the cleveland indians it was suckliffe versus Nagy. uh the orioles lineup was anderson in left Orsalak in right, Cal Ripken Jr. at short, Glenn Davis was batting cleanup in, at first base. I mentioned Mike Devereaux, who won the MBO, and I believe at the first Oriole home run at Camden Yards, he was batting fifth and center. Sam Horn, 
the DH, who had, an, or, who, uh, who had two hits that day. Uh, then Leo Gomez at third, Hoyles uh, at uh, catching, and then Billy Ripken uh, was your starting second baseman batting ninth. So that was the Orioles as they lined up on April 6, 1992. Against, as I mentioned before, a young Indians team that had, you know, a young Kenny Lofton, a young Carlos Baerga, Albert Bell, Paul Sorrento, Mark Witten, Sandy Alomar. And um, actually, you know, that lineup became pretty regular for years to come, too, with Cleveland. That was the lineup when you, you go back to 95 and they play the Atlanta Braves in the World Series. That's, that's basically their lineup. I mean, that is their group that's kind of just, you know, getting started. For Toronto, they were at a point, you know, they win the World Series in 92. They stunned the Phillies in 1993. And how the Orioles competed that year, especially when I think, and I don't have it right in front of me, I think it was 67 wins. You know, prior to that, I mean, you had Johnny Oates coming in and taking over. And while you had high hopes for, for Mike Mussina and Ben McDonald and, you know, Arthur Rhodes, all those guys with the very beginning of their major league careers and then Greg Olson, same story. To go as long as they did during that season where, you know, they're in striking distance of, of the Blue Jays. And, you know, with those, those great Blue Jays teams. And, and I think it was the, the tutelage of Rick Sutcliffe that certainly helped with that process. Because also in 92, don't forget, like, that was a down year for Cal Ripken. He worked his butt off, but that was a, a year where, where he didn't have his, his best campaign. So it was going to take some of those young pitchers and that defense to stand up the way it did and to make sure that you're siphoning off as many runs as, as you possibly can. And, and sure enough, Great year from Mike Mussina, maybe his best ever. Ben McDonald put together a really strong campaign. Arthur Rhodes had a great year. Greg Olson gives you 36 saves. And Rick Sutcliffe, too, who after those two injury-ravaged seasons before, comes to Camden Yards. He's lining up consistently against the, the staff ace on all those other teams. And he puts together a great year where, where he is tied for the major league lead and starts. Jeff, that was a lot of fun. Let's do it again soon. Brett, this has become the highlight of my week, and I love going back and reliving these incredible games and having these conversations, especially the ones we did today with Rick Sutcliffe. He's got a, he's got a lot of nuggets in there and, and a lot of great memories that, that I'm certainly going to remember, and uh, I, I'm really excited for, uh, for this podcast and, and what we have coming up because there, there's a lot of great games for us to continue to explore. There are indeed. All right, that does it for us. Tune in next time. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of 
the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team.